Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is John Marzalek, the author of Coming Out of the Magnolia Closet, Same-Sex Couples in Mississippi, published by the University Press of Mississippi. In it, Dr. Marzalek shares conversations with same-sex couples living in small town and rural Mississippi. He demonstrates how these stories illuminate a complicated relationship between many of the same-sex couples he interviews and their communities, and how they are influenced by Southern culture, religion, and family norms. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. To get us started, could you uh, share with our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, I am a counselor educator, which means I train um, students who want to be counselors in a mental health counseling program at Southern New Hampshire University, where I work online. And I actually live in Mississippi, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor, licensed professional counselor. So I work with some clients on the side, and then um, I do writing, of course. To get us kind of jump-started in your book, could you tell us one finding that you weren't expecting to learn about as you conducted research for this? Yeah, what I think when I went into it, I really thought that I would hear a lot of stories you know, from gay and lesbian couples where they had faced, um, obviously, discrimination, um, harassment, um, even violence. I expected to hear some really, really bad stories. And, and it's not that I didn't hear those stories. I think what surprised me was that there were a lot of the couples, especially the older couples, who said to me, I don't want to, I don't want you to interview me if you're going to trash Mississippi. Because they had this identity, in addition to being gay or lesbian, they had this identity with their communities. That really surprised me. And the second thing that surprised me was there was a level of tolerance in many of these small towns and rural communities. There wasn't acceptance. It wasn't that people said, oh, we're so happy to have a gay and lesbian couple here. It was more that they tolerated them as long as they didn't really expose themselves too much, as long as they weren't too out there. There was this, um, I talk about this in the book, a social compact of silence that um, John Howard originally described in his book called Men Like That, really a classic book on um, same male same-sex um, behavior in Mississippi back in the 80s and before. And he talked about this social compact where people in society pretty much just chose to ignore that same-sex behavior existed, that same-sex relationships existed. And as long as people really weren't too out there about that, people left him alone until, and he talks about this in his book, The McCarthy Era. But what I found, and um, in, in one way it's discouraging, um, obviously, because I found that there's still this compact of silence today that the couples describe, that as long as we're, as long as we're still not too out, a lot of couples talked about, as long as we don't wave the rainbow flag around, you know, people leave us alone. They see us as oftentimes two friends living in the same house together. Or they might, they might, they might say, in my case, there's John and Larry, but they don't necessarily acknowledge that they're a couple. 
And for their parts, a lot of the couples talked about that they don't really acknowledge the people that they are in a relationship. Now, that's what surprised me the most because, like I said, on one part, one hand, that's really, really discouraging that there's still this feeling that people need to really not be who they are to a full extent. But on the other hand, it was encouraging that I didn't hear so many stories of violence and discrimination. I did hear some, a lot of discrimination, but um, I was surprised that couples were able to find a place in their communities. I guess that's the best way to say it. That's a great segue for my next question, which is how did the people you interviewed talk about their communities? You know, what what were the the parameters of the communities? How how did they feel um, restricted maybe sometimes, but then also mm-hmm. welcomed in other ways? Yeah. And and there really was a difference, which would be expected in the age of the couple. Um, the younger couples describe their communities as very, very repressive, as you you might, you know, might think that they they missed being in a city they want you know where they went on weekends or for vacations and they missed um being around people that um really understood them for the older couples they were they tended to be more settled which makes sense and they tended to describe their communities as places that they had roots that they had family that you know places that they identified with um, many of the older couples were involved in their communities in different ways. Um, you know, there's one couple in the book who talks about, and it sounds like something out of a movie, but, you know, talks about the town having a festival every year. Um, I don't remember what kind of festival. There's that strawberry festival in that gay movie um, that was so popular 20 years ago or so. But they talk about a festival like that where they're really involved in it um, and they're really helping put it together. And so some of the older couples talked about their involvement in things like that. And so they really identified with their communities, but it didn't mean that they didn't still talk about the discrimination and the um, the feeling that they couldn't be too out there. A lot of times, though, they would differentiate between the politicians, for instance, the governor and the state legislatures, and then their neighbors, that they felt there was this um, tolerance in their communities, but then they would see the politicians passing these laws that were so negative towards um, gays and lesbians. But of course, their neighbors were probably voting for these politicians. So it's a really strange dynamic that, that you see in these small towns and rural communities. Do you think that it's kind of a, we know them, we know that they are fine, but this other group that they are a part of, we're distrustful of them? Oh, exactly. Yeah, um, many, many couples talked about um this idea that you know I'm more accept we're more accepted because um, we're not like one of those and I, you know I'm quoting I'm not saying that I believe this but we're not one of those couples that is in a big city and one of those gay pride parades waving flags and you know dancing around with their shirts off and you know we're, we we tend to several of the male couples you know said we tend to be more masculine we're not um, we're not so effeminate which it's not a bad thing, but for them, they view this as a bad thing um, because in their communities, they could fit in more if they were like the um, the neighbor that was like the other neighbors, except that they happen to be living with another man or a woman living with another woman. So we've talked about communities and obviously they're living within these communities, but uh, gay men and lesbians have to meet each other. How, how do they talk to you about the process of meeting? 
each other, their their loved ones. Yeah, when when I first started writing that chapter, um, I really was thinking about how really they met each other in ways that were no different than how heterosexuals meet each other, you know, at parties, at bars, online. But then as I started really getting into it, I realized that it was so much different because these are people living in communities where you really have to search out other um, other gays and lesbians. It's not like you can go to a bar down the street or you can go to the bookstore or something like that. Um, you know, and I had that same experience meeting my husband, even though it was in a college town that, you know, we went to a party that a gay couple threw in their home and um, gay couples came from the town we were living in across the state line in Alabama, you know, from all over the area, people are coming to this party and that's how people meet each other. Um, Of course, the internet has really opened things up because people can, meet each other on the internet. But what it means in a place like Mississippi is that people are traveling great distances to meet each other, oftentimes. How else did they discuss, say, the decision to get married or not married, how they approach talking about their marriage to others? Because you have this great chapter about the concept of marriage uh, in your book. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of a couple of couples, a couple couples. That sounds funny, but a few a few couples in particular. I'm thinking about, um, and there's there are so many different stories. But I, I remember some of the, a couple of the older couples when they retired. They've and these were two um, two female couples that were coming to mind. When they retired, they got married, and it was the most wonderful thing in the world for them. And um, one one couple talks about going down to the circuit clerk office and wondering if it's going to be okay. You know, if they're going to if they're going to have any pushback, and this is obviously after the Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage, um, and as it turned out, it went okay. But then there are other couples who were not retired yet. Um, one couple in particular, a female couple, that talked about they were so afraid that if people found out they got married either in Mississippi or in another state, that they could lose their jobs and they were nearing retirement. So they, they, um, you know, they chose not to get married yet. The younger couples were more likely to be to really just grab on to this, um, and most of them traveled to different states to get married because they felt it felt safer that way, and it felt, um, I guess, more exciting to go to a place that had a larger gay community. And I'm not sure if you're asking me about that kind of reaction or how they talk to each other about just the whole idea of whether we should get married or not. No, I think that's that's exactly part of it because I mm-hmm. I think. You realize, uh, or you demonstrate, an age age disparity that a lot of people wouldn't really expect. They wouldn't think that young people would necessarily be jumping uh, for this. But the, you know, Ogerbefeld changes everything, and so much of what is possible for younger people when they're at the a more marriageable age. Let's just use that as a ter- as a term. Um, it seems as though they jump at that opportunity, whereas the older people seem a little more reticent. And, and, That's exactly and, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and one of the, the sweetest things to me um, was one of the couples in the book who were engaged to be married. And, you know, they said, when I interviewed them, they said, you know, we're fiancés and we are, um, we're engaged. We don't want to get married until we finish our degrees and until we um, feel financially stable enough. And I just thought that was so sweet because, I don't know, when I was coming out, I never would have thought about being engaged to another man. Yeah, I just think that um, yeah, as a millennial myself, 
we are a confounding generation of, <laughs> yeah. of you know, we, we want to pave a new path, but we, we have generally a, a, like a strong traditionalist core and it gets exercised in, in different ways across a, a huge uh, demographic shift in America, racial and sexually and gender identity wise. Yeah, yeah. I guess I should say also that there were not the majority, but there were some couples who really felt like the whole idea of gay marriage um, didn't make sense. That that um, they they really use some of the same language that some of the activists in the um, in the GLBT community have used. You know, that idea that marriage is a heterosexual institution, that we shouldn't try to model ourselves after heterosexuals, and that um, it's too confining. Um, one couple in particular talked about really feeling like that engaging in marriage meant monogamy, and for their relationship, they did not view monogamy as a value. Um, and that that surprised me because I really didn't expect to hear that from couples in Mississippi because I assumed that they would be more traditional, um, you know, in the way the state can be to a fault at times, or not many times. But, um, I, you know, I did hear that from some of the couples. Um, and they did tend to be, now that I think about it, the older couples. So the, um, because these are couples who had um, grown up, some of them, you know, had been around when Stonewall happened um, or after. And so had been around during the 70s and the 80s when um, they really had to fight for the rights. They couldn't be out as much. Um, and they just had a different view of what, why marriage was important for um, gays and lesbians. And I think in a lot of ways, um, that is a much more radical period of, of gay rights, um, yeah. at least in the history of, of challenging heteronormativity is what we would call it today, right? And then mm -hmm. developing that language. Um, and, and, you know, uh, like the human rights campaign, rightly or wrongly, gets, uh, gets criticized for being too mainstream and, and whatnot. But, and that's kind of maybe what some of the younger people have seen, but um, there's a materiality to being able to marry somebody, um, you know, and, and that if, if your loved one who you're married to dies, you have a legal right to their property. And that wasn't always the case, right? That's right. That's right. And that, that you know, that, that's an interesting point too, in that for some of the older couples that I interviewed, you know, they talked about how we feel like we've been married for years where, you know, we have, we've been together 30 years. So we've, we made a commitment to each other a long time ago. So it's not that we feel like we need to get married, but we want the rights. You know, we want to know that if something happens to one of us, that the other one will be protected. Because there were, they they knew couples who had um, been in situations where one couple died and the, the other one's thrown out of the house by family members. Um, but then I'd also hear the stories of um, other couples, like my husband and me, who um, wanted to get married because we wanted to have our family at least my family and friends there and to kind of be a part of the joy that we experienced. Let's kind of dive into the southernness of Mississippi and and what you discuss in your book. Um, I'm a Yankee, a self-described Yankee, born, <laughs> born and raised in Massachusetts. So I, mean, oh. I think I like to think that that's as Yankee as you can get, right? Um, right. And plus, I was raised Catholic, so I don't have that evangelical culture running through my blood. Okay. Um, but I was raised Catholic too, I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> but you have this great chapter on on religion, 
And oftentimes, um, I think maybe because of the success, the political success of the religious right in the last third of the 20th century into the 21st century, people do not oftentimes equate religious selves and and sexual selves, especially homosexual selves. Um, but that's false, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and th- it's an area that was really important for me to include in the book um, and to interview my couples about. Partly, you know, a big part of it is because the importance of religion and the culture of the South and in Mississippi. And another part is or was because I'm a counselor and I've worked with so many gay and lesbian clients over the years who really experienced a loss when they were not accepted by their churches or they felt like they had to leave because of what the church's stance was on homosexuality. And I had done some research with some colleagues in the past about, um, spiritual identity and how it interacted with um, sexual orientation identity. So it was really important for me to include that in the book. And not surprising, most of the couples talked about wanting to have some type of religious or spiritual identity and wanted to still be um, engaged with a church of some kind. Here in Mississippi, I knew this to some extent, but I, I didn't realize the extent to which this was true. The Episcopal Church was one of the mainstream churches for so many of the couples that they felt welcome in, that they felt like they could go together, and they didn't feel like they'd be judged. Um, And so in small town Mississippi, that was the one church they could go to because they weren't going to get the same same reaction from other churches, of course. Some of the couples, though, have been going to churches their whole lives, oftentimes Southern Baptist churches, and they had family there and they had friends. And they were really torn because they didn't like what they would hear or oftentimes what they didn't hear. You know, they didn't hear any support, but they were torn about whether they wanted to leave because it was this community for them. Some, you know, some decided to leave and go to another church, like an Episcopal church, or um, if they were lucky enough to have an MCC, like in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, they would go to that kind of church. Others decided to stay and they said that they would take what they could out of it and just ignore the things that they didn't they didn't believe in. And growing up Catholic, <laughs> both of us can probably uh, that's, that, that's how we, we generally oh, yeah, uh, do that's things, right? right? Uh, that's no, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> um, were there other surprises when talking to uh, the people you interviewed about their religious selves and experiences? My mind goes immediately to... Um, a story by a same-sex couple. Well, they're obviously they're all same-sex couples, but a, a, a female couple, just wonderful people. And they were two women who had started the, my mind's gone blank. I think it's called Integrity. It's the gay and lesbian, I guess you would call it support group or a group that's formed out of the Episcopal Church to support um, LGBT people. And in their small town of Mississippi, they went to their minister and they were involved in starting this group at their church. But one of the things they told me that really, really surprised me was that they had um, been going to this, I believe it was a Baptist, Southern Baptist church years before, before they decided to make the switch and go to the go to the um, Episcopal church. And they really struggled with this because like I was saying before about many couples, it was part of their identity. They, they had grown up in this church um, at least one of them had, and they had family and friends, and it was it was part of their family. That's how they described it. 
and they left when they started hearing, you know, anti-gay messages, and they 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 said we have to be someplace that's going to be supportive of us. And years later, they they told the story of going back. The minister of the of this Southern Baptist Church died, um, and they went to the funeral. And when they went there, the son of this minister that had you know been their minister for years told them that. I want you to know that my father always loved you. And I guess the reason I'm telling the story here is because I would hear stories like that where some of the ministers, at least the way the couples portrayed them, they sounded conflicted themselves. And that that's really, I can't make a generalization to all, obviously all ministers in all churches, but I heard this a couple of times and it really surprised me because oftentimes, I know I'm guilty of this, I see ministers from these evangelists evangelistic churches being um, closed-minded, not open to hearing, not open to hearing other other um, viewpoints, which probably oftentimes is true. But I hearing these stories of people who describe these ministers who are conflicted really surprised me. Yeah, I imagine a lot of that comes with knowing the family over a long time, seeing somebody grow up in their church. You know, it's 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 hard to divorce that that personal experience. Definitely, that yeah, and that's such a that's such an important point that these are these are people these couples are people who are known in their communities many times have grown up in these communities and people see them as you know one of them and they it's almost like they separate them from the stereotype of of a gay or lesbian person that they believe is out there that they believe they should keep rights from or you know that they believe. The TV represents. I think very similar to this um, discussion of obviously growing up with somebody, you have a chapter on families and the people you interviewed, their interactions with not only their own family members and how that worked, but then also their thoughts on families and having their own. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about those two those two elements of family, the uh, coming out to the family, um, but then also forming one's own family? Oh yeah, yeah, um, and I guess this is—I guess this is something you—you you probably could fill this in for me as a historian. You know that that gay people have talked about for years. This idea that um, sometimes we often have to create our own families if we're, we don't receive the support from our families, or if we've literally been kicked out of our families. Um, and you know, this is this is what um, couples would talk about. And you know, and I—I I guess I can give a really. A really good example of that is, you know, is my husband's experience that um, when we got married, his family didn't come to the wedding. Um, sometimes it was financial, but other times it was family members who don't believe in gay marriage. Um, and so we had a really close family friend, a couple, come and step and be his parents, you know, for the wedding. And it was a great example of how so many gay people develop families that aren't their blood families, but they're people who support them and love them um, and become these crucial figures in their lives, they're these support systems. I think my last question deals a lot more with you, know, you coming in as a researcher in this project. Uh, as a gay man, was there, were there things you had to constantly remind yourself as you're interviewing? Did you feel like your counseling experience really helped with the interview process and really like get deeper into this this uh, topic than any anybody else had done before? Yeah, I think there's no doubt. I think the fact that 
that I'm gay myself, that the couples knew I, I'm in a relationship and that I live in Mississippi. And then the fact that I'm a counselor, you know, I bring my own, my own interviewing skills in, um, you know, my, I think as a counselor, you have to have an ability to connect with people and you have to be able to show empathy and reflect back to them, the feelings you're hearing from them and, um, the meaning you're hearing from their stories. And, and so I think that, I think that really benefited me. I think the thing that was the hardest for me in doing the interviews is the, I, these couples were just so wonderful. Um, so many of them were just fun, fun people. We would laugh so often and, um, I hear these great stories and I'd have to be careful not to veer off and go into, um, I don't know what kind of conversation you would call it, but conversation when you're sitting around with a bunch of people and just having a good time and talking and almost like if we're all in a gay bar together, just having this fun time and talking. I had to be very careful not to veer off into that because in addition to the interview, having interviews, having so many serious moments, we would have such a good time just getting to know each other and, you know, hearing about our, each other's experiences in these small towns. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the, the worst uh, research to do for a book though. No, no, it was, it was, it was a wonderful experience. I got to travel all around the state and, you know, meet people in their homes and see, see, you know, see people that, so many of the general population doesn't even re realize that are there. I mean, people don't think there are gay people in Mississippi after all. You know, why why would they be here? That that's that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest question I've got from people when they've heard I've wrote the book. You know, written the book is why why would you write a book on Mississippi? There can't be gays and lesbians in Mississippi. You know. Well, we give uh, for the last question actually. We we'll give our listeners just a, a slight taste of your conclusion, which is titled "Why Stay in Mississippi." Ah. So you'd like me to give a taste? Just a small one. Okay. Would you like me to read from that that chapter or just, just to tell about it a little bit? Just tell us a little bit about it. Okay. So um, this chapter is about people's decision on why they would or would not stay in Mississippi. And throughout the book, I frame it around my own experiences. And so in this chapter, people are talking about reasons why they'd stay. It's oftentimes family its roots. For some people, it's just a job, but for, for many, many people, it's because this is what they've always known, and, and this is their identity. They identify not only as a gay person, as a lesbian person, but as, as a Mississippian, as a part of their community. Um, and I talk about in the book, to, to really personalize it and to show the couples themselves and the readers that I'm really a part of all this too, that my husband and I struggled for years on whether or not we'd stay here. Um, I kind of got thrown back to Mississippi. Um, when I evacuated from a hurricane in New Orleans and I moved back here and I'm thinking, what am I doing back in Mississippi? And the two of us are back and going back and forth for several years. Do we stay? Do we go? We're both privileged enough to be able to, you know, move if we needed to, because our jobs would, um, my job anyway, would follow us. And we had this experience where this little small college town, Starkville, where Mississippi State University is, applied to have its first gay pride parade. And um, the city council denied the denied the permit for it, which was you know unbelievable, obviously. So the students and some of the faculty who had started this whole effort to have a gay pride parade in this town of twenty something thousand people um, threatened to go to court. And one of the lawyers from the um, marriage, the Supreme Court marriage case, got involved. And this was it with the news. It was all over the New York Times. It was um, you know national news that. Starkville, Mississippi had refused 
to offer a permit for a gay pride parade. So under pressure, one of the aldermen abstained, and the mayor, who'd always been in support, cast the tie-breaking vote to get, you know, give the permit. And so when the parade happened, there was just this huge outpouring of support from community members. Because there always had been support, but you had some, some of the old school aldermen who really were horrified about the thought of having a gay pride parade in town. But what it turned into was this amazing day of support for um, gays and lesbians with um, you know thousands of people marching down the into the downtown of this little town, you know, the biggest parade in, in the town's history. And I was so moved, my husband and I were so moved by it. And it was an, it was a changing event in the community. And for us, we, like several of the couples, many of the couples, we, we realized we really want to be a part of this. You know, we want to be a part of making this a better place and be a part of what, seeing what the future is going to bring. John, it has been great getting to chat about coming out of the Magnolia Closet. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Chris. And for everyone else, head to the University Press of Mississippi website and purchase a copy of John's book. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge scholarship.